0: Welcome to the Preservation Technology Podcast, the show that brings you the people and projects that are advancing the future of America's heritage. I'm Kevin Ammons with the National Park Service's National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. In this edition of the podcast, we join NCPTT's Andy Farrell as he speaks with Patrick Sparks, an engineer with Sparks Engineering Incorporated, and also the president of Texas Dance Hall Preservation Incorporated. Today they will discuss the restoration of the historic Hay Street Bridge in San Antonio, Texas, and the work of this unique preservation organization.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the podcast, Patrick.
2: Thanks, Andy. Glad to be here.
1: I've known you for some time and I know that you're passionate about the engineering aspects of historic preservation. How did you get involved in preservation engineering?
2: I was an aerospace engineer at the beginning of my career. And there was, so when I was about 25, there was a time when I decided I needed to look, you know, a little bit differently at my career. And I thought, well, does anybody ever study the problem of, of what do you do to, with all the stuff that we build, you know, or have built? So I got interested in that. And then I, I, it occurred to me to go back to graduate school. And when I did, I met David Woodcock at Texas A&M. He, at the time, he was the head of the preservation program there. And, and he uh, welcomed me with open arms as an engineer interested in studying preservation. What I found was is that historic preservation is really the only discipline at the time, and really still now, that has a, a formal set of principles about how do you take care of the built environment? So that's really what appealed to me, and and going back to graduate school to a program like that was was uh, just you know the perfect thing. So after that, I it took me a while to build a career in in this area, but it's the most satisfying thing that I've ever done.
1: You can't ask for much more than that, I don't think. So, give us in a, in a sort of a nutshell, Patrick. Tell us what is the role of the engineer in preservation projects?
2: For me, it's really about first setting the diagnostic protocol. That is figuring out or helping the the team of professionals and contractors figure out how to know what's wrong or right with the building. Or bridge.
1: Funny you should mention bridges. I, I know that you've just been involved in this exciting Hay Street Bridge Rehabilitation Project. Can you give us some background? What's, what, what have you been doing in that? What's, what's special about this bridge and whatnot?
2: Well, it's a really cool bridge. It's called the Hay Street Bridge or Viaduct. It's in San Antonio, Texas, and it, it consists of two 1881 wrought iron truss bands. That were relocated to San Antonio in 1910 to construct this really long viaduct over the railroad tracks, and it was built at a time when, you know, there were more and more trains, and of course there was more and more vehicular and pedestrian traffic, and so there was a conflict at the grade crossing. So the city compelled the railroad to build them a viaduct, and the And so the railroad chose to reuse these two old spans and then build the approaches, about a 1,000 linear feet of approaches out of reinforced concrete. And so it's really a pretty substantial structure, and it connects a historic neighborhood with uh, downtown San Antonio across this very active railroad track.
1: And so how did you get involved in this project?
2: Well, about... Eight years ago, in 2002 or earlier, 2001, we were asked by the city of San Antonio to give them some background information on trust rehabilitation. So we did that because they were looking for grant money at the time, the process of applying for grant money. And so we took them and showed them another project a similar age trust that we had rehabilitated just talked over some of the options with them, and then later when the request for qualifications came out, we submitted our qualifications and competed against other firms and were selected to be the consultants uh, for rehabilitation design. That was in 2002, and so we just now finished the project. So (laughs) it was a pretty long project, though the construction, the rehabilitation construction only took about 10 months.
1: Now, Patrick, in the beginning of this, did they ever consider continuing to use the bridge or or reusing the bridge for vehicular traffic? Or was it always from the beginning of the rehabilitation envisioned as a pedestrian bridge?
2: Andy, early on, I think that there were some thoughts about that because the bridge actually was in vehicular service until 1980 approximately. And so there really wasn't any reason from our point of view that it couldn't remain in vehicular service. But by the time we got involved, the state department of transportation and the owner of the bridge, the city of San Antonio had agreed that it would be only a pedestrian and bicycle bridge. They did explore the options of relocating the historic trust bands and other, and several other options during the feasibility study phase. But I honestly, I can't, I think that it, it certainly could have been a, vehicular bridge again. I think generally, if we just back up a little bit and talk about bridge rehabilitation, in general, we, we want the bridges to remain in vehicular surface if they can. In this case, we thought that they could, but it was a decision that we didn't have full charge of, but it, it does make a very good bicycle and
1: pedestrian bridge. We've talked a little bit about this before, and there are lots of historic bridges across the nation that find themselves sort of in the same circumstance. What lessons did you learn in this project that you'd share with those folks trying to, you know, involved in efforts to save their historic bridges?
2: Be patient and keep trying. Mm-hmm. You know, the, these trusses, well, one, one of the trusses, there's two. One of them is, is a Whipple, the larger of the two is a Whipple Truss, which is a particular kind of truss that was fairly common in railroad and, and highway bridges in the late 19th century. But it's no longer common at all. And there's, there's just a handful of them left in Texas and really not that many nationwide. And in particular, this Whipple Truss is made both of wrought iron for the main members. And then cast iron for the joint blocks that connect those members. So it's really rare, even in the United States as a whole, there's just very few of those bridges left. So it, that truss has very high level of significance. Now, I am bringing that up because an engineer, a fellow named Doug Stedman, who's very well known in Texas, he's retired now, but he's the one that identified those trusses as being historically significant and really rallied the community and just the local citizenry and the engineering community to get behind this project as as something that was very important. Doug's perspective on it was these were engineering landmarks, and he was successful in getting them designated as such through the American Society of Civil Engineers. So they're not only eligible for the National Register, they're also listed as civil engineering landmarks. But it was, more importantly, you know, it's grassroots. People have got to want to keep their old bridges. And that's really the essence of keeping them, of saving them, and even in the face of opposition from powerful entities like the state DOTs or the Federal Highway Administration the municipalities or the railroads, whoever is, you know, it's usually they're pretty determined to replace thing. And we see that in buildings also. It's the same struggle that preservation-minded people face. But bridges get pretty much replaced or used to be replaced without anybody notice, noticing it. And we've lost about half of our historic bridges in the United States over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. So but we're really the heritage of historic bridges is at risk. So it's important for people to, someone to identify the resource, you know, the historic bridge resource and say, okay, this is important. And then if people can get behind it, then to stay with it, hang on, and follow the available process, like the section 106 or what's also called, there's another one called 4F, which is supplies for bridges, and for citizen involvement to get People heard about what's important about the bridge, so it's not easy to save a bridge. In fact, I'd say it's harder than saving a building, because the use alternatives are pretty narrow. Yes. <laughs> There's a few examples of doing something other than using a bridge as a bridge, but mostly they kind of like to be bridges, sure. and that's what I that's what I tell people. You know, the bridge wants to carry people and cars and animals over some obstacle, whether it's a waterway or a road or railroad. That's what the bridge wants to do. And so that's what we really would like to keep them doing. So having getting to work with such a beautiful bridge and one that was made of wrought iron and cast iron, which is very durable, and you get to see the historic workmanship and the and the engineering genius that went into these things. It's it's really amazing. So to go back to how this one was saved. Uh, Doug Stedman, uh, engineer, uh, retired, uh, well-known, identified the bridge, and he said, well, look, we need to save this. So he worked tireless, tirelessly for over 10 years to save the bridge and raise monies, and he and a group of people in San Antonio, including the Conservation Society, raised about a quarter of a million dollars to help offset you know, the cost of the project, the matching portion, and they were able to go and get a grant to win a grant from the DOT.
1: Patrick, I was just gonna ask you, who were the other partners involved in this project?
2: Well, there's quite a few. So at the grassroots level, uh, Mr. Steadman and the community of engineers in San Antonio and the San Antonio Conservation Society helped in raising money. And the city is the owner of the bridge, city of San Antonio, owns the bridge. TxDOT, the Texas Department of Transportation, is the funding agency. They provided the Transportation Enhancement Grant, and they also provided some oversight to the project in terms of design review and construction inspection, things like that. They were involved as an oversight. And then as consultants, was my firm, Sparks Engineering, was the prime consultant and structural engineer for the project. We also had landscape architect Bender Wells Clark out of San Antonio and Garcia and Wright, civil engineers, and Joshua engineering group, electrical engineering consultants. And then the bicycle community was really behind it. And this is very important. The neighbors were very behind. This is a this is kind of a this is a very distressed historic neighborhood. Uh, that has been badly impacted by things like uh, warehouses and the neighborhood it was it's been been a, a historic neighborhood, but it's well it 's gone downhill but there's you know there's changes coming, and this bridge is part of that, so people are now uh, moving back into the area and the, and they're fixing up the houses and so there's some improvement, so the bridge is part of that improvement to the area and so I think the bridge was very important as a symbol. Of the community, that the community is really is still vital, and the bridge is seen as a landmark in this neighborhood. So I think that the community support for it was uh, overwhelming, and that really drove the project and drove a lot of the things that we did in terms of, you know, the choices we made. So, for example, the approaches, which are made of concrete, well. They were not only deteriorated; they were built in 1910. They were severely deteriorated and really could not be saved. But, moreover, they were really right in front of these neighbors' neighborhood houses. I mean, the approaches—just you know, big, wide, 30-foot-wide concrete bridge approaches—just descended right into these neighbors' mm-hmm. front yards, basically. And so it was really an awful place created by the, when the bridge was built in 1910. When things weren't really, you know, consideration wasn't generally given to the to being sensitive about you know what the neighborhood would be like after you built something. So really, the, there were there were a lot of problems with the way the thing was done originally. And so we, were getting, we we had the opportunity to fix that. So we made the approaches much narrower. So instead of 30 feet wide, we made them. 15 feet wide, which is what we needed for pedestrian and bicycles. And what that allowed us to do, because the, the approach spans are elevated, this allowed more light to come in, more space, more light, and so you don't feel that the bridge is oppressive mm-hmm. uh, anymore. And it gave the neighbors a lot of room in front of their houses. <laughs> and so now that space in front of their houses is landscaped, and it's beautiful, and, and people really respond to now how the bridge is. But we, we followed the basic profile and layout of the original bridge, and we found some ways to echo the theme, the, the kind of the architectural theme of the 1910 concrete bridge in terms of its uh, clean lines and rhythm and the, and the little brackets, cantilever brackets that stuck out in 1910, we replicated some of that or we interpreted some of that for our design so that we have a really nice rhythm in those approach structures, structures which that rhythm leads you right up to these historic iron trusses, which are the centerpiece of the project.
1: Excellent. Well, that sounds like a really great project, Patrick, but I want to sort of do the lighter side of preservation now because I know that uh, historic bridges are not the only thing that you care about preservation-wise. I want you to tell me a little bit about the Texas Dance Hall Preservation, Inc.
2: The dance halls are are my favorite thing, and (laughs) to anyone who's listening, you really have to come to Texas. And if you want to understand what Texas is and who Texans are, You can go to the Alamo and the stockyards and stuff like that, but you really want to know you go to a dance hall. And it happens that, you know, Texas has more traditional dance halls than any place on earth. We think that there are probably maybe 500 left out of a historic thousand or so that have existed in the past And the dance halls I'm talking about are traditional community halls that were built by German, Czech, Polish, and other immigrants that came in the 19th century and brought with them a heritage of social dancing. And that 19th century heritage is still alive in many parts of our state. So a few years ago, myself and a couple other people realized that what we had was a a really unique resource in these halls that still existed, though many of them are not used or only used rarely, but that the to a large extent the social and cultural vitality is still there. And when you go to one, it's like going back a hundred years and there's young couples and little kids and grandma and granddad, the whole family is there dancing. So uh, several of us got together and we said, this is important and it's very important to save. So we set up a 501c3 nonprofit corporation called Texas Dance Hall Preservation, Inc. with the mission of trying to save all the traditional dance halls in Texas. So it's a good time and we would like everybody to come down and go dance
1: Excellent. I'm, I'm ready to come myself. In fact, my next trip to Texas, I'm going to get in touch with you ahead of time and um, look, look for some schedules and whatnot. Well, Patrick, it's been a lot of fun talking to you today. Thank you very much. Thanks
2: a lot, Andy. It's great talking to you.
0: That was NCPTT's Andy Farrell with Patrick Sparks. If you would like to learn more about this podcast, visit our podcast show notes at the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training website. That's ncptt.nps.gov. Until next time, goodbye, everybody.